Open up your Bible with me to John chapter 6. John 6 verse 1 is where we're going to be. We're continuing this sermon series that we've been in for a while now, a few months, right? Walking through the gospel of John. At FB's chapel, most often we just preach through books of the Bible. So we want to jump in and just march through. So we're in John chapter 6 now, but we're starting kind of a, a series within a series. Again, if you've seen Inception, I say this almost every time. Dream within a dream, series within a series. John chapter 6 kind of has this special focus that we're calling... Uh, provider and provision, where we're going to talk a lot about bread, about God as our provider. Jesus shows us some pretty amazing things in chapter 6. So for about five weeks, we're going to walk through that. Without further ado, let me read the text for us in full, uh, verse 1 to 15. Would you follow along with me? John 6, verse 1 says, Sometime after this, Jesus crossed over to the far shore of the Sea of Galilee, that is the Sea of Tiberias, and a great crowd of people followed him because they saw the signs he had performed by healing the sick. Then Jesus went up on a mountainside and sat down with his disciples. The Jewish Passover festival was near. When Jesus looked up and saw a great crowd coming toward him, he said to Philip, where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? He asked this only to test him, for he already had in mind what he was going to do. Philip answered him, It would take more than half a year's wages to buy enough bread for each one to have a bite. Another of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up. Here's a boy with five small barley loaves and two small fish, but how far will they go among so many? Jesus said, have the people sit down. There was plenty of grass in that place, and they sat down. About 5,000 men were there. Jesus then took the loaves, gave thanks, and distributed to those who were seated as much as they wanted. He did the same with the fish. When they had all had enough to eat, he said to his disciples, Gather the pieces that are left over. Let nothing be wasted. So they gathered them and filled twelve baskets with the pieces of the five barley loaves left over by those who had eaten. After the people saw the sign Jesus performed, they began to say, Surely this is the prophet who has come into the world. And Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. Let's pray. Father, we, we love you and we thank you for your word. Thank you for the chance to, uh, to read it, to hear from you this morning. We pray that you would teach us and guide us as we uh, read this passage and seek to apply it to our lives. Lord, we, we need your help. We come with humble hearts and open hands to receive from you this morning. And Father, we thank you on this Father's Day for your uh, great love for us. You showed your love for us and as our Father did not uh, spare your Son, but you sent your Son Jesus to die for us. So thank you for your love and thank you for our fathers, the fathers in this room and what they mean to us. We, we thank you for them. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, well, John chapter 6, verses 1 through 15, this feeding of the 5,000. This is the only miracle that appears in all four Gospels other than the resurrection. This is the only miracle that shows up in all four Gospel accounts, which as, as a guy who loves to eat, as a man who loves bread, I find that quite encouraging, okay, that the feeding miracle is the one that they made sure showed up in each 
gospel. But we see uh, kind of this carryover from last week. The end of chapter 5 was really this like extended monologue, okay, where Jesus is, is talking and telling us who he is. There's this uh, confrontation with religious leaders. But now, rather than continuing just to tell us who he is, he's going to show us. He's going to show us who he is by what he can do. And so we see in verses 1 and 2, sort of the stage is set. Jesus has gone to the, the far side of the Sea of Galilee. And his ministry, we see, is becoming quite public, right? Before it was overlooked, it was in secret, signs were not as visible. But now about he's drawing quite a crowd, It's quite public. People have heard about who he is and what he can do. And so they're following him. And so you see the problem in verse 5, right? What happens in verse 5? Jesus looks up. He sees a great crowd coming towards him. He says to Philip, where are we going to get enough bread for these people to eat? Now, now I love that verse 6 tells us what Jesus is doing here. It's a test, right? He knows what he's going to do, but you can kind of picture him leaning over to Philip. and, Oh, man, this is looking pretty bad, Philip. I mean, that's a lot of people out there. There are thousands of people here. What in the world are we going to do? How are we going to get out of this one? Just to see how Philip reacts. And we see Philip answer, It would take more than half a year's wages to buy enough bread for each one to have a bite. We can't even buy enough food for people here to be fed. Verse 8, one of the other disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, shows up. And he's like, hey, here's a boy with five small barley loaves and, and two small fish. But how far will they go for so many? So you see that the stage is set. The circumstances are pretty challenging. Right? We have this crowd, 5,000 men, but as we've talked about before, uh, the women and children weren't included in that number. And so you add them in, and the count easily doubles or triples or multiplies by four even. So we have this massive crowd, probably a, you know, a small professional sporting event, you know, multiple thousands of people here. And you can tell by Philip's answer, like, we don't have what it takes to feed the crowd. It would take more than a half a year's wages, 200 denarii, which would be, again, one day's wage for a laborer. So 200 denarii wouldn't even give everyone a bite, a little bit. Now, the picture gets even worse because the resources they have are comically insufficient. Right? He, he finds this little child this, some boy who's there, like his mom packed him a brown bag lunch, and he shows up, you know, to go hear Jesus, I guess, and he's got five barley loaves and two fish. Now, barley loaves were the food of the poor, okay? It was uh, less expensive, easier to access for people. So five barley loaves. So there's bread, but it's not even good bread. You know, it's not even like fluffy artisan sourdough. It's not buttery farm and flour toast that you could just, you know, enjoy. It's, it's cheap barley loaves. So you get the picture. Overwhelming need. Insufficient resources given. What are these disciples going to do? Now there's one more detail that uh, is given in the text that we have to understand to know kind of what's going on here. Verse 4 tells us when all of this is taking place. Okay, verse 4 says what? It's at the time of Passover. 
Passover was this, this sacred Jewish festival, this sacred Jewish celebration where they would come together and remember the defining moment in their history, okay? They'd look back and remember the events of the book of Exodus, how they were in slavery in Egypt, how God brought them out with a mighty hand. He led them across the Red Sea. They embarrassed Pharaoh. God worked these plagues. He was working through Moses. And so every year... Uh, the Jews would celebrate Passover. They would celebrate their deliverance, how God rescued them, how God raised up Moses and and brought them into freedom. And they looked forward as well, not just back. They looked forward to the day when God would raise up another deliverer, another prophet like Moses who would come and bring a new Passover and even greater deliverance than what took place in the book of Exodus. And so at the time of Passover, People were ready. I mean, anticipation was high. People were looking for a deliverer. People were longing for God to do something in their midst, to throw over those oppressive Romans, to bring them freedom once for all. And another part of the Passover story that connects here is after God rescued his people from Egypt, led them across the Red Sea, out into the wilderness, he did what? He, He fed them. He provided for them because they were wandering in the wilderness for a long time and God gave them food to eat, manna, bread from heaven to sustain them. Okay, so with all that in mind, we have the scene set for us. Massive crowd in the wilderness. Philip, we can't even buy enough food for this crowd. Hey, we got some kid here with some cheap bread and fish. Verse 10. Jesus said, have the people sit down. There's plenty of grass in that place. And they sat down. About 5,000 men were there. Jesus then took the loaves, gave thanks, and distributed to those who were seated as much as they wanted. He did the same thing with the fish. When they all had enough to eat, he said to his disciples, gather the pieces that are left over. Let nothing be wasted. So they gathered them and filled 12 baskets with the pieces of five barley loaves left over by those who had eaten. So Jesus performs a miracle, right? He miraculously feeds the crowd. There's another sign that the book of John gives us, revealing who Jesus is and bring us his power, taking this embarrassingly small amount of resources and making it enough. What does he do? He has them sit down. He takes the loaves and fish, which, again, I imagine uh, were a willing contribution from the boy. Right? I don't picture Jesus or the disciples as like bullies, like, hey kid, give us your lunch, okay? Give us the bread, give us the fish, get out of here. You thought that was just for you, forget about it. We're going to take it and feed some people, okay? Scram. Jesus and the disciples were from Brooklyn, okay? That's how that works. So I, just I, I doubt that's how it went down, right? Jesus probably wasn't stealing the kid's lunch. The kid probably brings some sort of willing offering and is, is willing to have it be used. And so Jesus says, okay, distributes uh, it to those who were seated. And it says, verse 11, they ate as much as they wanted. So they didn't just get a bite a little bit. He, he just uh, lavishly provides. And so in one sense, this is it's pretty straightforward, right? Jesus provides miraculously. He, he takes what little is there, and he makes it enough. It shows us his power. But there's some key details here in the story that we should point out that will kind of give us some more depth to what's going on here, okay? 
So the first thing I want you to notice is that Jesus sort of paints himself here as this lavish host, as this people, this hospitable host setting his people a, a banquet, a, a meal for them. Notice in the text, verse, verse 10, he, he has the people sit down. They kind of recline as you would at a nice meal. So you like have them sit down. And then verse 11, it was common in Jewish tradition for the head of a household to take bread, to break it, to give thanks, saying something along the lines of, Blessed are you, Lord our God, ruler of the universe, who brings forth bread from the earth. Say Some kind of Jewish blessing like that. And then verse 12, we see that people eat as much as they want. And verse 13, not only that, but they had 12 baskets left over. Right? And in the ancient world, if you had plenty of leftovers, that was a sign that you were a really good host. Okay? Kind of like today, right? If you run out of food at a party or wine at a wedding, right? we talked about a few weeks ago, uh, there's shame around that. There's like, oh, you're clearly not a good planner, not a great host. Okay? But if you have leftovers, plenty of food, more than enough, then that's what? That's an indication of being a generous, good host. So Jesus shows us, knows that. He's a a hospitable, generous host. He invites us to his table. He cares of God for our needs. It's such a beautiful picture of of the heart of God that he invites us. He is for us. He he welcomes us. He wants to take care of us. He wants to, to nourish us. He's not indifferent to us. Now I imagine that in this crowd, there were a lot of of broken people, a lot of weary people, a lot of tired people, right, in a crowd this size, and he does not discriminate, he just, he feeds them, he says, I'm glad you're here, he loves them, he nourishes them. So he practices lavish hospitality, which reminds us then that hospitality is not linked necessarily to having a nice house. Right? Sometimes we think to be a good host, to have the gift of hospitality, I have to have a nice house and a, a big you know, gathering space to invite people into. But we see that, that Jesus was the most hospitable person uh, the world has ever seen, and he didn't have a home. So hospitality is not about a building, it's more about a spirit, a heart of welcome, right? of making people feel welcome. You can belong here, you are cared for, you are loved, you are seen. So Jesus is a lavish host. The text also shows us, though, in, in a pretty straightforward way, right, we've all kind of probably already picked up on this, that, that Jesus provides for us uh, what we cannot provide for ourselves. You think again about, about the story. The resources are embarrassingly small. Right? And we're like the crowd then. We're, we're in need. Or we're like maybe the disciples looking out at the crowd, looking out at the massive need and saying, there's no way that I can meet the needs that are in front of me. With so little, how can so little possibly respond to the great needs around me? Again, maybe you can relate today. You look out at life and maybe it's quite overwhelming. Overwhelming need. Maybe it's in your family Maybe there are broken relationships. Maybe there are uh, health issues you're dealing with. Maybe there's loss and grief you're navigating. Maybe at work, 
you're weighed down. Maybe it's just the problems in the world, right? You, you read the news, you look at what's going on in the world or in other parts of the world, and you're just overwhelmed. And you say, it's all too much. It's way too much to handle. How in the world can, can I, with what little I have, actually make a meaningful difference? Maybe that's why you're here this morning, <laughs> because you just look out of life and it's overwhelming and exhausting, and you find yourself weary and at the end of your rope. So Jesus provides for us what we cannot provide for ourselves. And notice too, just notice with me that that, that really goes against kind of a, a modern narrative that we often hear. Where we say, hey, to the, the answer to your problems, the answer is found within, within you. Right? Just look within. Look to your own strength and your own resourcefulness and you have what it takes to, to get the job done or be the change that you want to see around you. So, so believe in yourself, right? We're so often used to being told that. Like it's, it's about you. So the answer is to look, look within and figure it out. And so the strength or the virtue or the, you know, whatever you need to get through this tough time is found in you. Right? I mean, that's, that's what we hear so, so often. But Jesus is going to show us something different because he, he tests Philip. He's like, hey, Philip, what are we going to do about this huge problem? Where are we going to look? How are we going to solve this? He wants to see what he's going to say. In the same way, he wants to see, like, where do, where do we look? When the problems are overwhelming, where do we go? What do we think is going to fix it? Where do we turn our eyes? Because the point of the story is that the disciples cannot rely on their own resources. They have to rely on Jesus. Jesus provides for them what they cannot provide for themselves. So in the we need to, simplest of terms, we don't have what we need in ourselves to do what we need to do. We need help from outside. And now none of this, I should say, I should clarify, none of this would, would take away from the, the dignity or, or the, the strength, the beauty, the creativity that, that people have, right? We're all made in the image of God. And so God has given us incredible gifts and talents and abilities to create and to address problems, and to do all kinds of amazing, wonderful things in the world. So in a lot of ways, we can say, hey, yay, yay humans. God has equipped us to do some pretty incredible things. And yet at the same time, we recognize, one, our sin, and two, our limits, and three, that we do ultimately need help from outside of ourselves. So when we're looking to, to overcome addiction, when we're looking to break habits that are destructive in our relationships, when we are looking to be more selfless or to provide for our families or teach our kids or do our best at work or be more disciplined or whatever it might be, Jesus is, is reminding us that, that we can't simply look within. We need help. We need help from the outside. <clears throat> now, we'll see, though, that this miracle, as, as later in the chapter Jesus is going to talk about, is about more than just you know, temporary needs and circumstances and temporary bread, right? Meat, about more than just like one brief meal and how God can, you know, uh, fill us and help us meet the present needs around us. Because Jesus is going to say later in the chapter that he is the bread of life. He's going to say, hey, whoever comes to me shall not hunger. And whoever believes in me shall never thirst. So he's saying this, this miracle, it's meant to point us to something deeper than just a one-time meal, than just uh, a, a, a filled stomach with food, with bread, with fish. It points us to, to a deeper need, 
a deeper hunger that Jesus came to provide. And so in the same way, Jesus came to provide for us what we cannot provide for ourselves, which is what? Salvation? Forgiveness of our sins? Reconciliation with God? A new heart? A new life? Again, think again about, about the bigger picture. It's Passover, right? The time of Passover. And so the people would be thinking about Exodus. They'd be thinking about Moses. They'd be thinking about crossing the Red Sea. They'd be thinking about being rescued. And Jesus is showing them that, yes, something greater than Moses is here. A greater prophet, a greater Exodus, a greater Passover is about to take place. A greater word. So think about the connections. In the book of Exodus, the people of God were in Egypt, and they were protected by the plague of death and judgment by what? By the blood of a lamb. And they were led out of slavery by the power of God, and they crossed over the Red Sea to a new life and a new identity, and God provided for them richly in the wilderness. And Jesus is making a connection. We're going to see that in Christ... Through him, we're saved from death and judgment by the blood of a lamb. And we're led out, crossing over from death to life through faith in Christ and the power of God into a new life and a new identity where God provides for us both now and forever. So this passage reminds us of the heart of the gospel. That God loves us. That God wants to rescue us, save us from sin and death. Bring us into a new life. Give us his spirit. Give us new hearts. Provide for us. And let us walk with him forever. All through faith in what Jesus has done, right? Not through works. Not through earning it. Not through being good enough. Not through performing or jumping through certain spiritual hoops. But all as a gift of grace from God. Now, there's one other thing we've got to see in this text. It gets, gets good, people. It's good in verse 14 and 15, okay? You see how the people respond, right? Verse 14. After the two that saw the sign Jesus performed, they began to say, surely this is the prophet who has come into the world. Okay, that's good. Verse 15. Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and take, make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. Isn't that interesting? Verse 15. Jesus... After this big miracle and this big scene and people are like, oh my gosh, this is the guy, this is the guy. He, he slips away quietly, you know, sneaks out the back door, goes to a mountain quietly uh, by himself, makes a quick escape. Why? I mean, why wasn't Jesus like, that's right, you all saw it, you ate the bread and you ate the bread and you got some bread and you got some bread. I'm the guy. That's what's up. I saw you stuffing your face with bread and fish. I saw you eating that. It's about me. Come on, people. Here we go. Right? Why didn't he have that sort of reaction? It's interesting. The people, the people their response was partially right, right. They saw it and they're like, this is the guy. Right, like verse 14, what do they say? This is the prophet who has come into the world. This is the guy. This, this is the one that, that the Old Testament was telling us about. So Deuteronomy chapter 18, when, when Moses said, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your fellow Israelites, you must listen to him. When Deuteronomy 18 said, Hey, there's going to be a prophet come, Moses to come. Now verse 14, they're saying what? This is the prophet. This is the guy. He's the one who, come, who is coming into the world. And they're right about that. He's the provider. 
in the wilderness. He's providing them a new deliverance. And so we know that Jesus is more than a prophet, but he is this prophet fulfilled. He is this Messiah. So their confession is accurate, but incomplete. But where they go wrong is in verse 15. Okay, you guys saw it. Verse 15. What do they do? They intend to take Jesus and make him king by force. Literally, it says they want to seize Jesus or like snatch him, which rule number one, like Jesus 101 is you can't seize Jesus. Like you can't take Jesus by force and go make him do something he doesn't want to do. Right? Like rule number one about Jesus is he doesn't go somewhere unless he wants to go there. Okay, so like that's, you know, Jesus 101 is like, He's in charge. You can't strong arm Jesus, okay, and seize him. But these people, they wanted to seize him and make him king by force and pull him into their mob and take him and make him their king. Now, remember, again, the context. Passover. They're like, we, we want a new deliverer. God's going to do something big. He's going to overthrow the, the pesky Romans that are in charge, and he's going to establish his kingdom, and there's going to be some military battles here, some victories. Start this. Go, Jesus. Jesus is our guy. He's our king. He's going to come and fight our battles. Let's start this thing. Let's go attack the Romans. And Jesus withdraws. He says, nope. That's not what I came to do. Yes, I came to be your deliverer. Yes, I came to rescue you. Yes, I came to save you. But I didn't come to save you from the Romans. I came to save you from sin and death. I didn't come to kill the Romans. I came to die at their hands for the sins of the world. So you got part of my mission right, but really you guys are misunderstanding the heart of what I'm about. See, they had these expectations, right? As we all do. Expectations of what Jesus will do for us. Expectations of what the Messiah would come and do, what the Messiah would look like and be like. They had their agenda, their vision, their plans, their box that Jesus was supposed to fit into. They thought, you know what, we have our plans and priorities and our cause, and Jesus is going to come, and and he's the Messiah. He's a big deal, so he's going to come and champion our cause. Again, we do the same thing today. We try and make Jesus the spokesperson for our cause. We try and take him and, and fit him into our agenda and our priorities and our plans. I've had friends on, maybe you guys have seen this, people on social media posting about Jesus, about any sort of different issue, and like Jesus would say this or Jesus would say that. And I have friends who make posts like that who aren't even Christians. They don't read, don't read the Bible, don't, like, don't, don't really care at all what Jesus has to say, but they're like, oh, Jesus could make a point for me, so I'm going to you know, bring him into this argument and make him say what I want him to to say, like, I don't read the Bible, but I know what Jesus would have thought about this, right? And it's like, it's kind of interesting. Um, or maybe you've seen um, Jesus' name used to support things that Jesus wasn't really about, right? I've seen Jesus used as a spokesperson for, for the NRA and guns for, for the Republican Party. Uh, maybe you've seen that uh, infamous picture of a, a KKK meeting with the banner, Jesus Saves, behind it. Horrible. Are people taking the name of Jesus, bringing it into their twisted cause to fit their agenda? We see the same thing continuing today. Sometimes people want to paint Jesus as like just a socialist, like he's an economic revolutionary. That's what he was really about. We'll take Jesus and say, hey, he's going to champion kind of my kind of relationship or sexual expression. He's all about whatever you want it to be. 
Or maybe people will take Jesus and say he was just, uh, to the bone, a revolutionary, anti-establishment. So any sort of, you know, establishment or religion or whatever is not what Jesus to mind about. Or you name it. You see, you see what I'm saying? We, we take Jesus and we say, I'm going to fit him into my view of the world, my cause, my agenda. Whether it's right or left or in between, we, we all have a tendency to do this. And it's not that Jesus doesn't care about social issues or causes in our day. He does, and, and we should too. We are the people of God who come, what, to see God's kingdom come on earth? To see our world more reflect the heart and love and grace and compassion of God and reflect his ways? But we need to be careful that we are about his business and that we're not just taking him to be about our business. Distinction. We need to be careful that we're about his business in very active, visible, public ways. Fair enough. We need to make sure we're really about his business and not just about our own. And so, friends, I, with, all, with all grace, with all compassion, with all love for you, I, I beg you, would you receive Jesus as he is, not as you want him to be? We all have to come to the text with humble hearts, and really see Jesus as he is. Rather than liking him to advance our own agenda, say, Jesus, what would I, your agenda, what were you about? What mattered to you? That, that's what I want to be about. So I'm going to take you on your terms, Jesus. What kind of Messiah, deliverer are you? It's a challenge for each of us. And friends, we have an opportunity to, to come to Jesus on, on his terms, as he told us to, by, by taking communion. So as a church family, we, uh, and, and Christians throughout history for thousands of years, have gathered and taken basic elements, the bread and the cup, to remember Jesus, to recommit themselves to him as king, as savior. And so we, as a, as a church family, have a chance to do this. You uh, should have the elements on your seats, or maybe receive them when, when you came in. This is the way that we kind of go back to basics and remember what Jesus was all about. We remember, what, his broken body, his shed blood for us, that we needed a Savior, we needed to be forgiven, and Jesus came and made a way for that. So friends, I'm going to say a short prayer for us and then we're going to take the elements together, okay? Lord Jesus, we, we love you and we just are amazed at who you are, at what you've done, how you time and time again take what we have and, and you make it enough. Thank you for being our provider. Thank you for being such a gracious lavish, generous, kind host to us who welcomes us with with open arms. You truly are the friend of sinners like us. And Jesus, we, we pray that you'd forgive us for the ways we've tried to take you by force and make you drive our agendas and our priorities And we pray for your forgiveness and that you would help us just surrender our hearts to you and say, we want to care about what you care about, Jesus. We want to let you set the agenda. We want to come to you on your terms. 
And so, Jesus, we remember your death and resurrection, your broken body and shed blood for us. Thank you for saving us. Thank you for dying for us and giving us new life with you. Amen. Well, friends, on the night he was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he, he took the cup and said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood given for you. Do this in remembrance of me.